Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. In the course of a week, I end up talking about everything on this program. I asked TC to pull some notes as to ground I have covered just this week. Of course, Afghanistan dominated our dialogue. We talked about the consoler in chief. We talked about whether the withdrawal was inevitable. We talked about the Biden speech. We talked about how he'll be remembered, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. COVID, a second big subject. Ivermectin, uh, why haven't we re- reached herd immunity? The anti-vaxxers, what does triage mean? Should we treat the unvaccinated differently from the vaccinated when there are scarce resources such as ICU beds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Talked about Sirhan Sirhan. Great conversations about the man who murdered RFK and whether he should get out of prison. Asset forfeiture. I was intrigued by a Nevada state trooper pulling over a former Marine, seizing all his cash. We talked about football and head injuries. Lee Steinberg was a great guest. We talked about college and uh, grad school admissions with Jeffrey Salingo. We talked about Mike Richards and Jeopardy. We talked about Dead and Company. We talked about ABBA. We talked about me drinking a bug in my Manhattan. We talked about my trip to Ocean City for 12 hours. I mean, everything. And of course, we celebrated with Steven Singer the fact that we've raised a million dollars for 9-11 charities by selling $10 pins. I mean, I generally enjoy discussing everything. There is a subject that in my three decades doing what I'm doing now, I seek to avoid. Any guesses? The A word, abortion. I just don't like talking about abortion. I find the subject matter to be raw, to be painful, I find minds to be entrenched. Uh, I find no disrespect to all of you here at POTUS. This is more a reflection on my old days in terrestrial radio, but I find the phone calls usually to be non-illuminating. At least that's the way that it was before I came to Sirius XM. But every once in a while, there is something so significant that I don't have a choice, no pun intended. And so it is with the Texas abortion law. It is very complicated. I think I get it. And I want to try to explain it to all of you. And I also want to frame a political question after I've laid out the sum and substance of the matter. I knew that we were soon going to have to have an abortion conversation here. I just didn't think it would be Texas that would prompt it. I thought it was going to be Mississippi. Because remember, that Mississippi case is going to come up in the fall. It's that law that forbids almost all abortion after 15 weeks, which is a heck of a lot sooner than the standard set in Roe versus Wade. Roe, I think, wisely pins the law to viability. Now, I say wisely, and I better catch myself because... Whether you can read viability into the 14th Amendment, that's questionable. I've always thought that I have always thought that Roe came to the right conclusion, but for very thin legal reasons. That's my thought. But when I say wisely, I'm speaking not legally. I'm speaking intuitively. In other words, 
What Roe versus Wade says in very simplistic terms is that states can't place undue burdens on a woman's choice before the fetus has reached a point of viability. And viability is somewhere in that 22 to 24 week range. You've perhaps heard me say in the past on the infrequent occasions when I've talked about abortion that that I've always thought it would be medical advancement, medical science that was going to limit a woman's right to choose because as viability is moved closer, is that what I want to say? I think so. In other words, should viability shift from 22 to 24 weeks to, say, 15 weeks? Then all of a sudden, you know, Mississippi saying that all abortion after 15 weeks should be forbidden will make sense under Roe versus Wade. You understand that, right? So viability is the premise. Again, a different conversation on a different day, whether you can really read that into the 14th Amendment, uh, questionable, but it makes intuitive sense to me. If the fetus is capable of surviving outside the mother's womb, then mom's choice is diminished and the right to life of the fetus is enhanced. That's the basis. There it is in a nutshell. I think I did it. That's the basis of of America's abortion law. Everything's premised on viability. Before a fetus is viable outside the womb, a woman decides. And after the point of viability, she loses that unfettered choice. Okay, you with me so far? That's the easy part. So what is this Texas law and debate all about? Wednesday night, there was a five to four decision. I say decision. It was not a, a an opinion in a conventional sense where there had been argument, there had been deliberation. Now there were formal opinions being written. This was much more on the fly. And in a five to four determination, maybe that's a better word I should use, the court let stand a very restrictive abortion restriction. Now, you know that the court today, nine members, is a 6-3 divide, conservatives and liberals, right? What had been, you know, a 5-4 situation and you never knew what was Anthony Kennedy going to do post-Trump, it's now a 6-3 world. In this case, there weren't six votes. Why? Because Chief Justice Roberts sided with the liberals. He's done that before. Think Affordable Care Act. In several instances, he has sought to be the moderating influence, you know, the Anthony Kennedy of the the contemporary court. Here he went the other way, but it didn't matter because the court is 6-3. And so Chief Justice Roberts, if he wants to play the Kennedy role, cannot swing decisions that are otherwise lining up ideologically unless he brings somebody with him. Hence, Wednesday night was 5-4 with conservatives prevailing. The order was unsigned, this order that was released. We know from the dissents who lined up where. You had Thomas and Alito and the three Trump picks, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett. I mean, talk about the power of presidential elections. Every four years, I'm the guy behind this microphone saying, you know, the one presidential power that we're not talking about that, frankly, is superior to all other 
presidential powers, except maybe committing us to war, is the power to appoint not just Supreme Court justices, the whole federal bench. So the Texas law is a ban on most abortions after just six weeks. Whoa, Mississippi 15, that's coming up for the full treatment. But this is only six. It effectively means that if you're six weeks pregnant, you cannot have an abortion in the state of Texas. Because that is, what's the premise? What's the belief in Texas? The premise in Texas is, well, that's when most fetal cardiac activity can be detected. Aha, there's a heartbeat. Therefore, we can't end the prospective life of this fetus. Doctors, by the way, largely who oppose this legislation say "Mm, that's misleading because the fluttering that you're detecting isn't necessarily a heartbeat so early in a pregnancy. Very key. Don't let your eyes glaze over. This is a very important statement that I'm about to make about the Texas law. The law makes no exceptions for rape, sexual abuse, or incest. Yeah, I mean, so this is like, this is, this is as hardline as hardline can be. No abortion after six weeks, a time when a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant. That's how early it is. And the law makes no exceptions for rape, sexual abuse, or incest. Therefore, it is a, because of the six-week demarcation, it's a total affront to Roe versus Wade. And some say a precursor to an overturning, which is quite interesting because the 400-word order that the Supreme Court issued on Wednesday doesn't mention Roe. But in terms of how this is being received, you got the president of Planned Parenthood regarding it as a, a turning of the clock in Texas to pre-Roe. Planned Parenthood's president says, like, Texas, you are now in the country pre-Roe. What was it, 72, 73? It cannot stand in the shadow of Roe, meaning it's, it's at odds with Roe. For the Texas law to survive, Roe would need to be overturned. But this was largely a procedural issue. This was not a substantive dealing with Roe versus Wade in the way that I've explained to you all this business about viability. And this was actually the, uh, you know, the, the, the genius or the diabolical genius of Texas. In other words, this is the way they crafted it. They crafted it to withstand initial challenge. Robert Barnes does a great job in the Washington Post. Here's a paragraph from him. The Texas law was specifically designed to keep federal courts from intervening before it could take effect. It replaced government officials who normally would enforce abortion restrictions with individual citizens. They can bring civil suits to impose damages, not on the woman who seeks the abortion past the six-week deadline, but anyone who aids and abets her in any way. Or to hear Michael tell it, this is like unleashing dog the bounty hunter into the abortion world because now you're empowering citizens to go and do something about it. The law does something novel. It, 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 it incentivizes the public to police abortion. It allows people, anybody living in the state of Texas, to sue an abortion provider or anyone else that they suspect is aiding and abetting abortions after the six-week mark. 
And the law sets a $10,000 award if you're successful. Dog the bounty hunter. That's how I think of this. Hey, I haven't heard anybody else say that. It just popped into my head. TC, remind me that I, I coined that, okay? So um, what else do I want to tell you about this before I get to the politics of it? The court's order on Wednesday said, I'm still sticking with some of Robert Barnes's uh, uh, coverage and, and uh, uh, because he explained it cogently. The court's order said the challengers to the law did not show they were likely to succeed with their own novel plan to combat the law, stopping state court judges and clerks from accepting those civil lawsuits. In other words, the opinion said this, federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws, not the laws themselves. It is unclear whether the named defendants in this lawsuit can or will seek to enforce the Texas law against the applicants in a manner that might permit our intervention. It said the decision is not based on any conclusion about the constitutionality of Texas's law and in no way limits other procedurally proper challenges to the Texas law. What was that word salad all about? It was the Supreme Court saying, hey, don't interpret what we're doing here as our concluding that the Texas law will withstand a constitutional challenge. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that right now we don't, because of the way in which this was crafted very deliberately, we don't think we have the power to stop it yet. Amy Howe at SCOTUS blog. She always does a terrific job. Here's here's what she said on, on this confusing aspect of why, if it's at odds with Roe, would they allow it to go forward unless ultimately they're going to overturn Roe? Amy Howe says, to make it harder to change, pardon me, to make it harder to challenge the law in court, particularly before it went into effect, the Texas law does not rely on government officials to enforce the ban. Instead, it deputizes private individuals to bring lawsuits against anyone who either provider, that should be provides, provides or aids or abets an abortion, and it establishes an award of $10,000 for a successful lawsuit. The court acknowledged that the providers had raised serious questions regarding the constitutionality of the Texas law, but that was not enough to stop the law from going into effect, the court said, because of the way the law operates. Specifically, the court observed it wasn't clear whether the state officials, a judge and court clerk and the anti-abortion activist whom the abortion providers had named as defendants, can or will seek to enforce the Texas law. In other words, we got to wait for that to happen before we can rule on the substance of the Texas law. And this is the thing. This is the thing. The Supreme Court is therefore allowing the law to stay in effect while the battle over its legality continues, which is what caught off guards abortion right advocates who say, but wait a minute, it's clearly constitutional. The justices didn't say anything about whether the statute is constitutional. In fact, they cast aspersion on that, I thought. They just said, mm, it's going to stay in place for a while while this is all being litigated. Raising the question of whether the court, it'll still be the Mississippi case. It'll be the Mississippi case that gets the full argument and the opinion. Has the court just tipped its hand as to what they will do in the Mississippi case? Or, or is this a case of, of just sort of strutting their conservative bona fides? 
Okay, so what's going to happen in the meantime, as the Supreme Court says, "Mm, you know, just not yet. We're going to keep it in place for a while. We're not yet prepared to rule on the substance of this. Well, in the meantime, abortion rights advocates say that 85 to 90 percent of women needing an abortion in Texas are at least six weeks into pregnancy. And that means that most abortions are now effectively banned in Texas. What will happen next, next, if a private citizen sues someone for allegedly violating the abortion ban, abortion right groups and providers will then challenge that lawsuit and the constitutionality of the new law will be heard in court. And that could ultimately get to the Supreme Court. But I think it'll be Mississippi, not Texas, that ultimately gets some type of post-Casey, post-Roe ruling on abortion. But that's what the Supreme Court majority is waiting for. If a private citizen sues someone for allegedly violating the abortion ban, abortion right groups and providers then challenge that in a lawsuit. Now that goes up the legal system. Okay? Interesting. The Guttmacher Institute estimates that abortion could be severely restricted or illegal in as many as 22 states if the Supreme Court were to overturn its legal protections for abortion. Meaning, if there were some watering down, an overturning or watering down of Roe, how many states are poised to change their law? Guttmacher Institute, which tracks these things, says 22 states, 22 states. So, okay, that is the Texas law as best as I can summarize it for you. I now want to talk about the politics of it. And in particular, I want to talk about the ramifications and who benefits from all of this mishigas about abortion right now. There are some competing viewpoints on it. Mike Allen, in his newsletter today for Axios, State of Play. The White House sees abortion as a potent issue ahead of next year's midterms with Biden under huge pressure on Afghanistan, inflation, crime and the border. So with all of these other plates that the president now has spinning, there's a mindset that says, well, this is good news for the Democrats, because now here's a core issue. Women's choice that is under assault. This will rally the Democratic base. It was interesting that yesterday in the White House briefing, uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki had an exchange with a reporter named Owen Jensen from a Catholic news network that sounded like this. Why does the president support abortion when his own Catholic faith teaches abortion is morally wrong? He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. Why does the president, who does he believe then should look out for the unborn child? He believes that it's up to a woman to make those decisions uh, and up to a woman to make those decisions with her doctor. I know you've never faced those choices, nor have you ever been pregnant. But for women out there who have faced those choices, this is an incredibly difficult thing. President believes their rights should be respected. Go ahead. I think we've got to move on. I think we have to move on. You've had plenty of time today. Go ahead. I I know that that some on the left say, oh, what a drop the mic moment that was for Jen Psaki and the White House. Yeah, there it is. That'll rally the base. Don't underestimate how that will play with the Catholic News Network and and its listeners and supporters. Back to Axios. The White House wants to elevate the Texas abortion case, even though aides know a high-profile fight over abortion rights will also energize Republicans. That's because Democrats say the sheer sweep 
of Texas's law and the highly unusual way that it's written make it a juicy political target. Right. You could see those 30 or 60 second commercials, couldn't you? Democrats think the issue will especially help them with suburban voters who hold the key to the House majority. A senior House Democratic aide. This is a massive political gift to the Democrats. And then there's a reality check in Axios on the actual issue of abortion. Democrats are losing. They're unlikely to stop this trajectory no matter how well they do in the midterms. A more straightforward abortion case, Mississippi case, that's a likely vehicle for the conservative course to chip away at Roe is teed up for the term that begins next month. As I said, it's the Mississippi case that I think will have the long term impact. So uh, there's that. From the Politico playbook, I noted this paragraph, just trying to give you different takes on the politics of this. Some conservatives who oppose abortion rights are arguing that the Texas law is a terrible vehicle to advance the cause from its six week ban on abortions to the bounty hunter provision. Oops, they didn't say dog the bounty hunter, but there's a thought that I just expressed. Maybe I read it there and parroted it. Uh oh. Texas law is a terrible vehicle to advance the cause from its six week ban on abortions to the bounty hunter provision and no exceptions for rape or incest. It means they're swimming against popular opinion, even among those who are sympathetic to curbing abortion. In other words, this mindset says, you know what? This goes too far. No exception for rape or incest and six weeks too much. We'll lose that argument. And finally, there's Jeff Greenfield. You know that I have the utmost respect for the multi-time Emmy award-winning broadcaster and political analyst. Um, Three or four paragraphs from Greenfield, if I may, and then I'll hit you with the survey question. Greenfield says the consensus narrative goes something like this. After Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, it triggered passionate opposition from the pro-life constituency while pro-choicers grew complacent in the years that went by. Abortion foes consistently were more focused on the issue and the allied issue of Supreme Court appointments. Now, with Roe on life support, the pro-choice majority will take to the polls in greater numbers. In Virginia, ex-Governor Terry McAuliffe, in a close race to regain his old job, is already making the abortion issue a central argument to his campaign. So, Greenfield says the narrative, the conventional narrative is, "Ooh, this is bad for Republicans. This is good for Democrats. This is going to rally their base. The pendulum will be swinging. The opposition to Roe versus Wade has been a great motivator for ours up until now, but now it's about to shift. But Greenfield then says, but based on the last four decades, this argument may not be all that solid after all. For one thing, it turns out that abortion was really not an instant trigger for conservative evangelical political engagement. As Politico detailed in 2014, the evangelical community was by and large supportive of abortion rights for years after Roe versus Wade was decided. It was only when powerful figures on the right saw abortion as a way to build support for their real agenda, private segregated schools, that Jerry Falwell embraced the cause. More significantly, there's good reason to question the notion that the Republican embrace of hardline anti-abortion politics will hurt their political prospects. And then Jeff Greenfield gives us a history lesson. Back in 1980, the Republican National Convention discarded its we-respect-both-sides stance. Yeah, that existed 
up until 1980 in the Republican platforms and instead embraced a plank essentially banning abortion for any reason at all. It also, the GOP endorsed a human life amendment to the Constitution, which would affect have banned all abortions nationwide. Some in the party saw this as a political disaster. In a fiery speech at the Republican National Committee, GOP co-chair Mary Crisp denounced the abortion plank, saying that the move would prevent the party from electing the next president of the United States. You know what's coming next? Ronald Reagan won 44 states, a 10-point popular vote plurality, and 489 electoral votes. And herein lies a principal reason for skepticism about the power of the abortion issue to move votes, the political polarization at the heart of our current politics. Because unlike past decades, party identification is now the most powerful indicator of how a voter will choose Once you've signed up with your team, your tribe, your sect, it takes far more than it once did for you to abandon that tribe in the polls. John F. Kennedy famously said, sometimes party loyalty asks too much. But these days, it speaks with a roar. If the behavior of Trump in the White House over four years was not enough to drive significant numbers of Republicans from the party ranks, it's hard to imagine that an issue like abortion rights will. The Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com.